Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Again, welcome you to Christ Church in Town. It's good to see so many of you uh, under and around the tent uh, this morning. Uh, let me just let you know what's going to be happening in our preaching both this morning and then continuing on into the fall semester and beyond. We're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, we're calling this series Purpose and Power. Purpose and Power. Because we do believe that that's what uh, the book of Acts shows us, is that the Christian life uh, is not just good news about uh, the work that Jesus did during his earthly life. But it's also the good news uh, that he enlists our life into this kingdom project of extending his work into the world. He fills our lives with purpose, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, he fills our lives with power, right? That we can have a new life and new power so that our lives can really matter in this life that he's called us to. Uh, real briefly, I want to point you to a resource that we're happy to make available to you. Uh, on our, our resource table there, we have these uh, great little journals. This is uh, the book of Acts uh, printed for you on one side of the page and then pages uh, there that you can take notes on the other side. So please do. If you didn't grab one on the way in, uh, grab one on the way out. We'd love for you to be able to keep this with you on Sunday mornings, take your notes as we uh, preach through the book, and then maybe at the end of the sermon series you'll have uh, your own little resource, your own commentary uh, on your process through the book of Acts. So grab one of those. It's free. Uh, we'd love to, uh, to send one home with you. So our series starts, fittingly enough, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, if you would, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, this past week, uh, Major League Baseball did something that can only be described as being targeted directly at my demographic. They hosted in a small cornfield in Iowa, something they called the Field of Dreams game. Did anybody see the Field of Dreams game? A few people, a few baseball, a few people still watching baseball. And so what they did was they went to the place where the Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams, had been filmed, and they made a baseball field there in the court, right? So they had, instead of an outfield fence, there was corn. And then with the swelling soundtrack of Field of Dreams going in the background, Kevin Costner walks through the corn holding a baseball. And he walks out to the center. And then right there, out of the corn, start walking players from the, uh, the White Sox and the Yankees. Uh, the two teams that, uh, that played in, uh, in Field of Dreams, they're dressed uh, like uh, character reenactments from turn-of-the-century baseball and the old-school uniforms, and they emerge from the corn. It might have been a little bit dusty in my room as tears came to my eye. But it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, but also, it, uh, it was an exercise in pure nostalgia, right? It was baseball recognizing, hey, we know what a certain segment of our audience is looking for. They're looking for feeling all of the feels that they felt. Uh, maybe it was in the early 1990s when Field of Dreams came out, or maybe they're lifelong baseball aficionados and they have uh, these memories back to turn-of-the-century baseball. And it was the highest, it was the most watched regular season baseball game in, like, decades. And that's both, if you're Major League Baseball, that's both good news and bad news, right? We, you know, there's been a well-documented struggle for baseball to regain a bit of market share, to get uh, millennials and Gen Xers and, and what is it, Gen Z, uh, to watch baseball. Because, to be honest, baseball games, they're a little bit long and boring. Right? There's three hours parked in front of a TV. So they struggled to kind of connect in the present, and so they resort to the past, saying, well, we can catch that nostalgia and catch people back up in it. And friends, that's, that's honestly the way that many of us think about Christianity in the modern world. Right? That it's a kind of a declining interest. Uh, it's competing with market share among uh, groups of other new religions or no religion at all that to cling to Christianity is somehow an exercise in nostalgia. That it's a remembering a previous era when Christianity enjoyed more cultural uh, cachet than it enjoys in our current moment. Or maybe even an exercise in nostalgia to centuries before. Right? That it's looked at instead of a living faith that animates our present and gives us hope for the future. That it's surely an exercise in memory and in nostalgia. That's certainly a belief that's prevalent out in the culture as the world looks on at the church as just kind of quaint, wishful thinking for a bygone era. But I think it's also something that we as Christians can sometimes feel, right? That, that it's a, a memory of something that's long past instead of something that fills our present with meaning and hope and power. And into that world, the book of Acts is strong medicine. Because what Acts reminds us of is that the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, is always moving forward. That it does look back. 
but it's also always reaching us in our present and giving us hope for our future. You know, Acts was written uh, by Luke. So sometimes you'll hear commentators refer to one work, uh, Luke and Acts, or Luke Acts. Right? We can view it as a two-part book. So in the first of these books, Luke tells the story of Jesus. And in the second of these books, Luke is telling the story of Jesus' people, the story of the church. Luke begins Acts by giving us a little bit of a, a key to interpreting it. He says, uh, in my first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is the patron who commissioned him to do these two books. He said, in my first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So what he's saying is, look, there's a, there's a two-part book. There's Luke and its sequel, Acts. And Luke is about all that Jesus began to do and to teach during his earthly life, during his ministry, during his sacrificial death, and during his resurrection. Right? That's all that Jesus began to do and to teach. But notice he doesn't say, in my first book, I told you all that Jesus did and taught. He says, I told you what he began to do and to teach. The implication is that in this next book, I'm going to tell you all that Jesus continues to do and to teach. Now, through his spirit, working through his church. And so the gospel and acts are linked together by the work of Jesus. That the Jesus who lived and who loved and who worked miracles and who uh, loved people. The Jesus who gave his life and who was resurrected. That Jesus that began to do and to teach is now going to continue his ministry through the common life and ministry of his people. And for Luke, the thing that knits the first half and the second half together is the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Luke uh, begin, The Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension, and then he retells that part of the story at the beginning of the book of Acts. What he's saying is that what joins the two together, the, uh, the spine of the two books, is the ascension of Jesus. But it's because Jesus, after his resurrection, goes up to the right hand of the Father and pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. Because Jesus ascends, that's what fills our life with his presence. Now that seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? That Jesus would have to ascend, that he would have to leave this world in order to continue his ministry in this world. But that's precisely what Jesus teaches in all the Gospels. Right? That when he ascends, he will pour out his spirit on his people. He tells uh, in the Gospel of John, he says, unless I go to my Father, I can't send to you another comforter. The Holy Spirit will be with you. There's this amazingly poignant scene in John chapter 20 uh, when Jesus uh, is in the tomb or so it's thought. And Mary Magdalene, the woman who he had set free from the power of uh, many demons who afflicted her life, who he had set free from a broken life of sin, she goes to Jesus' tomb after he's been in there for three days to, to prepare his, his body for burial. And as she goes and she finds this empty tomb and she doesn't know what's happened, her mind doesn't go immediately to, oh, he must be resurrected. It goes to, oh, the bad news just keeps getting worse, right? Not only have they crucified him, but now they've done something with his body, and she begins to weep. And then Jesus comes up to her, and, and she, she doesn't know who he is, 
through her tears, she, she believes him to be a gardener. Somebody just there to tend the area around the tomb. And she begins to talk with him. And if you remember, it's when Jesus says her name, he says Mary. But she looks up and she recognizes that it's Jesus himself. And so she grabs onto him and she won't let go. She's wrapped around him like, you know, every once in a while my kids will wrap around my legs when they don't want me to go to work. And you're dragging yourself to try to get away and she's clinging on to him. And Jesus says to her, Mary, Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers, that's the apostles, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. What Jesus is saying is, look, you can't stay connected to me by clinging to me. right? You don't stay connected to me by trying to hold me back. I have to go and ascend, and then you'll be connected with me in a way that you can only dream of right now. If I go, if I take humanity to the right hand of God, I'll then pour out divinity. I'll pour out the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into your life. And I'll be with you in a way that's closer than you could ever cling to me. I'll be with you, bringing you into the life of the Trinity, right? Connected to the Son who's at the right hand of the Father and filled with the Spirit. You'll have a part in my life and you'll have a part in this mission in the world. And so the, the thing that knits what Jesus began to do and what he continues to do is his ascending and his pouring out the Spirit. That's what joins our work to Jesus' work. If you notice what he says in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Right, Just as Jesus, before he began his earthly ministry, was baptized by John and the voice of the Father spoke over him, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descended like a dove. Like just like Jesus was equipped for his life and ministry by a baptism. He's saying you'll be equipped by that same spirit. You'll be joined with me. The same spirit that fell on me to send me out into my ministry is going to fall on you. To send you out into my ministry and to do my work. And so Jesus, the one who began to do and to teach so much during his life, continues to do and to teach. He teaches uh, in his resurrection here the same thing that he taught all through his life. We're told that he instructed them for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. You know, if you could sum up all that Jesus taught in his life under one big heading, it would be about the kingdom of God. Right? That was his central message. When uh, when Matthew goes to summarize what he taught, he says that he went around the, the towns and villages preaching the good news of the kingdom. Luke does the same thing, that Jesus' good news is the good news of the kingdom. The idea that in his teaching he's saying that God is beginning to reign on this earth in such a way that everything broken is being made straight, everything unjust is being made just, everything that sin has warped and distorted and made sick. Grace under the reign of God, under the reign of Jesus is making whole and healthy and right again. Right, that's what sums up all that Jesus did. All of his other teaching fits into that, right? When he teaches about prayer and piety and money and sexuality and our lives and our time and all the other things that he teaches about fit up under that larger heading. He's teaching us how to live under his reign, how to live under his kingdom. And he's teaching them what it means to live in the kingdom of God. 
And now in his resurrection, he begins explaining to them again for 40 days that the kingdom of God is still his, his main theme. You know, the disciples could have been forgiven for believing that all this talk about the kingdom had come to nothing. Right? The crucifixion did not look very much like the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, it looked like the one they believed to be their king being executed by another king. It looks like we're getting some rain out back uh, from the from the uh, my guest. Uh, there is room up front if anybody wants to work their way around if you don't want to get wet. Um, so please do. But uh, this uh, this message of Jesus of the kingdom could have looked like it came to nothing. And Luke really is clear that to the disciples it did look like it had come to nothing. If you remember, Luke tells the story of Jesus with the disciples on the way to Emmaus when he says, when they say to him, we had hoped that this one would be the Messiah, right? Their, their hope has led to disappointment, come to nothing through the crucifixion. But now in his resurrection, he's rebuilding that dream for them, that the kingdom really has come, that life really is winning out over death in his resurrection. And so he spends 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. And from the looks of things, they needed this. From the looks of their interactions with Jesus, they needed this extended 40-day teaching on the kingdom of God because uh, from the looks of things, they are still completely mistaken on what the kingdom of God is, even after those three years of living with Jesus. Right? When Jesus begins teaching them about the kingdom, they say to him in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? It's amazing the degree to which the, the disciples still don't get it. But they say to him, Jesus, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? John Calvin, in his teaching on this verse, says this, There are as many things wrong with this question as there are words in it. Which is great. I like sassy John Calvin getting after the uh, disciples on this one. There are many things wrong with this question as there are words in it. Right? Their question, are you at this time going to reveal, uh, going to restore the kingdom? Right? First, they're wrong about the timing. Right? They're believing that, that Jesus' plans have to fit to within their lifetime, that it has to fit uh, to within uh, some span in which they remain the central characters in his kingdom. It remains, uh, they remain fixated on the past. Right? Look at the question, are you going to restore? Right? Are you going to bring back what was? Are you going to bring back David's kings to David's throne so that national Israel is restored? So they're wrong on the timing, looking now and looking backwards. And they're wrong on looking at the people. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Is it going to be again an ethnically defined and nationally defined kingdom? Right? Is this a kingdom that's going to take place uh, just for Israelite people under an Israelite flag? So they're wrong about when, they're wrong about where, they're wrong about who. They're fundamentally mistaken about the nature of the kingdom. And the bad news, friends, uh, is that Christians have been mistaken on basically these same things for going on 2,000 years now. Right? If you look at uh, the best-selling books about the end times, right, it's always an attempt to read ourselves and our times into the center of the story. Right? It's, it's, we love to find things that help us to watch the news and identify the plagues of Revelation or you know, what's going on and who, who the Antichrist is and who, you know, all that stuff. Right? We love, we, we, it's like it's a, a human instinct to read ourselves and our time into the center of the story. And we've been reading our people into the center of the story. 
right? Believing that the kingdom of God somehow uh, orients around primarily one nation or one ethnicity or one culture instead of recognizing that it is a transnational, transcultural, transhistoric people of God that he's working with. And you know, most of the book of Acts is going to be telling this story. It's going to be telling the story of how a group of Israelite converts to Jesus, to Jesus' Messiahship, have their world expanded to include the entire world. Right, we're going to see it at Pentecost where the Spirit falls on Peter and he preaches and everybody hears the gospel in their own language, right? It's not just going to come through one language. People are going to hear it in their own language. It's going to come through Paul, the uh, the Pharisee persecutor of the church, when he, of all people, becomes apostle to the Gentiles, right? When he's sent out beyond the boundaries of Israel to bring the gospel to all people. We're going to see it when God takes Peter and leads him out and takes him to Cornelius' house, where he learns that things that previously had been ceremonial, ceremonially unclean and untouchable are now clean, where the Gentiles he spent his entire life avoiding, he's now told to eat meals with, Right, so much of the book of Acts is going to be about the kingdom pushing out beyond the boundaries of any one nation, one language, one ethnicity, and taking over the entire world. When Jesus talks about the kingdom here, he does so in this realm of, of uh, kind of concentric circles of influence. He says, when the Spirit's poured out on you, you'll be my witnesses. You'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, into the end of the earth. Right, he's saying that it is going to start in Jerusalem, right? The, the kingdom that was promised to start at the throne of David is starting there, right? It will start in Jerusalem when the Spirit's poured out. But then it's not going to stay there. It's going to go to Judea, right? So think about that as it's not just going to be uh, your city, but also your region. It's going to be all of uh, it's going to be all of Duval County, not just Jack. Well, Jacksonville's a bad example on counties and cities, right? But it's going to be all of, all of Florida. And it's not just going to be Florida. It's going to be those people that you don't like, right? It's going to, it, it's, it's going to be for Georgia, too. That's what Samaria is. Oh, it's just in Georgia shirts. Uh, it's going to be not just for Judea, not just for your neighbors and uh, people that uh, share your customs, but to Samaria, your neighbors to the north that you don't like very much, that you have ethnic and religious rivalry with. It's going to be for them, too. And you know what? It's not going to stop there. It's going to be good news to the ends of the earth. People that the, you know, the disciples could not have imagined the people that would be touched by the, the gospel of Jesus. Right? They could not, as, as uh, Middle Eastern Palestinians who probably had not in their life seen a whole lot of people a whole lot different than them. They likely had some contact with Africa, maybe some marginal contact with uh, kind of Central Asia. But for the most part, light-skinned people like me, they've never seen before in their lives. They would have no idea of the way that the gospel would move up into Europe and then, and then over to the Americas. They had no idea that the gospel would bear fruit and take root in China among people and languages they had never heard or seen before, or travel down to sub-Saharan Africa. They would travel to, to Latin America, to all the continents and nations of the world. And that's what Jesus promises here, that, it, that the gospel is going to go out to the ends of the earth. And what the disciples are going to learn is that's actually always been God's promise to them. That his promise to his king, to the Messiah, was that the nations themselves would be his inheritance. That all peoples would come into his temple. And that that was going to bear fruit as they went out into the world. 
And he gives them, and he gives us, a very special role in this story. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We're going to have a whole sermon uh, on that in a couple weeks, on the, the pouring out of the Spirit. But he says this, he says, you will be my witnesses. Right, our role in the story isn't to make it happen. Right, We're, we don't get to be the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero. But he says, you are going to be my witnesses. In your life, you're going to bear witness to both what I began to do and to teach and what I'm continuing to do and to teach. Your role is to be a witness. Now, I don't know about you. I grew up, I uh, actually grew up in Jacksonville, uh, and I grew up in church, and I'm used to hearing the word witness and having a small anxiety attack. Uh, I grew up feeling like witnessing was something you did. Right? It was a it was the horrible day you showed up at youth group and you said, Hey, what are we doing tonight? And they say, We're going witnessing. And you go, Oh man, I'm about to get spat on by a bunch of my neighbors or ring ring the doorbell of a bunch of people who don't want to don't want to answer it. Right? Witnessing was conceived of as a verb, but if you notice what Jesus says here, witnessing is a noun, or witness is a noun, it's an identity. Right? He doesn't say you're gonna go witnessing, he's saying you're gonna be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness points beyond themselves towards something they've experienced, something they've seen and heard. Right? It's not about them, it's about what they saw. It's about what they experienced. It's telling the reality of something that either happened or didn't happen. And Jesus is saying, you're going to bear witness to my life, to my death, and to my resurrection. Friends, listen to this. John Scott, a uh, recently deceased uh, British pastor, said this. The kingdom of God is spread by witnesses, not soldiers. Through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. And by the work of the spirit, not by the force of arms, or political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. The kingdom of God is spread by witnesses, and not soldiers through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, by the work of the Spirit, and not by the force of arms, or political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. I think this is an act of faith, uh, to really believe this, that this, the kingdom comes, the kingdom is spread, through simple lives of witness. Right, to believe that that can change the world. That ordinary people bearing witness to the kingdom of God, to the life of Jesus, can change the world. That's what the story of Acts is. It's the story of how those witnesses change the world. Commentator Michael Green uh, from the University of Oxford wrote uh, maybe my favorite little book on Acts. It's called 30 Years That Changed the World. 30 Years That Changed the World. And his idea is basically that, that from roughly A.D. 34 through A.D. 64, the years covered by the book of Acts, this small little group of despondent followers of a crucified Messiah became a movement that truly did change the world. That by the time it ends, Paul is in prison, waiting to speak to Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And within a couple of centuries after that, Christianity would actually topple that man's empire. That the Roman Empire would rise and fall, and Christianity would, would come out from it. And that Jesus would be the one who had an empire that spread to the ends of the earth, not Caesar. That it would touch every tribe, tongue, nation, and culture. That those 30 years would change the world. 
And there have been other periods of Christian history where Christianity has made a world-changing difference, where it's changed communities and neighborhoods and cities and nations that Christianity really can change the world. And it's not a type of Christianity that, as Scott says, about soldiers or revolution or political intrigue, but it's a simple life of witnessing to Jesus. The kind of Christianity that can change the world is the same kind of Christianity that can change our lives. Right? You know, Christianity, it is an offer to have your life changed. Right? It's not something that you add on to a life that's going pretty well. It's a message that has the power to revolutionize our lives and to change them. And the type of Christianity that changed the world in those first 30 years, the type of Christianity that changed the world through the First Great Awakening, the type of Christianity that's changing the world in pockets all over it even today, is a type of Christianity that takes both halves of Luke's Gospel seriously, that treasures what Jesus did in his life and work on earth. Right, and what is that? He, uh, Luke gives it to us in shorthand here, and it says that Jesus... Uh, in verse 2... Uh, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Right? After his suffering. That is shorthand for a whole lot of backstory. Right? That's the entire story of Jesus humbling himself, coming to earth, being born in a stable, uh, growing up and living a normal human life, loving uh, his people, calling the people to himself, healing and spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners, dying on the cross, a sacrificial death, resurrecting being born to new life so that we could taste new life with him, the kind of Christianity that can change your life does mean looking back at what Jesus did do during his life and celebrating it. It means finding your hope and your security and your life in all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Right? And so a Christianity that has the power to change your life means resting in what Jesus has already done for you. But it also means Believing that he is still working by the power of his spirit in your life today and in your world today. Right? The Christianity isn't just, all the good stuff in Christianity isn't back there in the past. It's not just about remembering what Jesus did, but believing that through you he's poured out his spirit and he is working in your life and through your life. Now we are uh, a part of a tradition. We are we're a Presbyterian church. You may not notice that because Presbyterians aren't known for our tent revival meetings, uh, but here we are. And Presbyterians in general uh, have done a we have majored on in a in a beautiful and wonderful way on the finished work of Jesus. Right? It's a wonderful part of our tradition, is that we acknowledge that we rest in Jesus' finished work. Like John Murray, one of the great uh, theologians of the last century, uh, theologian from, from Princeton Seminary, when he was on his deathbed, his last words, I thank God for the, uh, for the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. Right on his deathbed, he's thanking Jesus for the work that he did on the cross for him so that he could die knowing that he rests secure, covered by grace, justified by faith. Right? We, we love and treasure what Jesus did in his life. We are not always as good in recognizing the active power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today, in recognizing and believing that Jesus is still working in our hearts, that Jesus is still working to make us new and to make us whole, that Jesus is still working 
in broken families and broken relationships and broken cities and countries. Right, that he's working, he didn't, he didn't just work in the past, but he wants to work in us and his power to fill our lives. And so that we can do things in our lives. Witnessing to Jesus means not only bearing witness to what he did do, but it's bearing witness to what he is doing in us and through us. I had a, a, a friend that told me, and I think this is right on, that most of my neighbors who don't yet believe in Jesus don't really care all that much about my testimony of how I came to faith as a middle schooler, right? That, that doesn't necessarily move them. But the story of how Jesus is setting me free here and now from my anger that sometimes lashes out against my kids, how he's saving me here and now from the anxiety that sometimes can keep me up at night, how he's saving me here and now from the addictions that can wrap all of us up, right? The story of the present power of Jesus setting us free is a powerful witness to who he is, to what he began to do, and what he continues to do and to teach through us and in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we too thank you for your finished work on the cross. We thank you for the fact that you died once and for all. That on the cross, when you said it is finished, uh, that you meant it. And that what was finished was all of our wondering, all of our trying to earn our way to the Father. All our lives are being separated by the, from the Father by our sin. All of that, Lord, is finished in your finished work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in all that you did, in all that you taught, in all that you are for us. But, Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would wake us up to the power and purpose that you have for our lives here and now. Lord Jesus, as I talk to just the members of this church family and I hear the stories, I know that this has been a hard year, a hard 18 months. Lord, it, it takes faith. It's hard to even see how you're living and working in us when we don't feel it, when we feel far from you, when we feel like we're wrestling with despair, anxiety, and sin. Unbelief seems to be right there with us at every turn. And so, Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would wake us up your present power in our lives, that you are working in us, and that you promise to work through us, to take your kingdom to the very ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.